Radical Personal Finance is a crowdfunded project created by me, but supported by you on the basis of a voluntary exchange of value for value. If you receive value in the content, please consider going to radicalpersonalfinance.com slash patron and showing your appreciation with the return of value. Today on the show, I have a tribute to the life and work of Dr. Tom Stanley, author of The Millionaire Next Door. He died tragically yesterday in a car accident in Atlanta. And today I want to honor his legacy with the 10 lessons that I learned from his work and some personal stories of how he encouraged and helped me. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets, and I'm your host. Today is Monday, March 2nd, 2015. Today, we will be honoring the life and legacy of Dr. Tom Stanley. I can't think of an author or a body of work that has had a greater impact on my life and on my personal financial philosophy than his body of work, and I want to share with you some of the lessons that I learned from him. Last night, I was looking on my, I had a notification pop up on my Facebook feed from a listener of the show who shared an article with me. And he said, also, I know that you were, uh, uh, you were a fan of, are a fan of Dr. Tom Stanley. I thought you would want to know the news. And evidently, he died tragically on Sunday afternoon, uh, out driving his car on Sunday afternoon there in Atlanta, Georgia. And the details are of, the, of the car accident are not necessarily. Uh, fully disclosed in some of the news articles. You can find some of the details. Evidently, he was out for a Sunday afternoon drive in his new uh, Chevy Corvette, and somebody plowed into the side of him. Thankfully, it wasn't any kind of uh, accident that makes you... It was certainly tragic, but thankfully, it wasn't the kind of accident that makes you upset when people are out doing foolish things um, in cars, you know, and driving at 300 miles an hour or something like that. Uh, those are Those are... I mean, any death is sad, and those are especially sad in this situation. It's quite tragic because it seems the other driver was fully at fault and, and Dr. Stanley was not. Uh, but, uh, but he died yesterday, and he was at the age of 71. And it's very sad. It's always hard for me to know how to deal with things when people you don't really know die. So, But uh, I'll tell you a little bit some of the personal, uh, personal history. I never met him, but I did have some interaction with him that I'll share with you in today's show. But as I was reflecting on his life and on his work, I was thinking through some of the philosophies that I hold around financial planning and was looking at his books here on my shelf and I got a few of them down and kind of flipped through them to see my, some of my notes and my highlights and my learnings over the years. And I realized that he's probably the author who, more than anyone else, has had a greater impact on my life and on my thinking. Uh, the first uh, book of his that I ever read, I'm sure, was The Millionaire Next Door. And I have no idea how I was how it was recommended to me. But when I was very young, I must have been in high school still, I read The Millionaire Next Door and then I reread it. And I've reread it multiple times uh, over 
you know, the decades. In fact, I had the audiobook. It was the abridged audiobook, but I used to listen to the abridged audiobook from time to time. It was one of the audiobooks that was in my car, and every now and then I would just listen to it. That and let's see, How to Win Friends and Influence People was another audiobook that I referred to, you know, again and again and again. And I commend both of them to you. Just excellent, excellent works. Uh, I've owned six of his books and read six of his books. Uh, he has either two or three that I haven't read yet. Uh, but it started with The Millionaire Next Door, which was his first and and most famous work. Uh, also, I read that, and that was essentially a book profiling uh, who are the wealthy in the United States of America. And I'm going to share that with you in today's show. Also, I read a book called The Millionaire Mind, and that was a book where he profiled Deca Millionaires and Up, and that was an excellent book. I learned a lot from that. Uh, then I read his three books called, uh, which are very not very well known, uh, but extremely useful. I'm always surprised that people don't know about them. Uh, but a book called Selling to the Affluent, another one called Marketing to the Affluent, and the third called Networking with the Affluent. And then finally, I read his book, uh, which was published a few years ago, called Stop Acting Rich. And he's got at least another book or two. One is called The Millionaire. Millionaire Women Next Door. I have not read that. It's been on my list for a long time, and uh, I will certainly now read it um, just to see. Uh, but uh, I can't remember if he has another book or two as well. But his works have had a, had a big influence on me, and even just he himself uh, influenced one significant decision of in my life. And I'll, I'll just share that with you. And uh, it's it's good to honor people. I like to honor people, uh, and I. Tried to honor him while I was while he was alive. <laughs> in fact, I'd reached out to him on the show um, a couple once, twice actually, twice, inviting him on the show for an interview, and uh, his staff declined me. And it was perfectly understandable. There's no, uh, it, it was not. A, it was a very polite decline. But I'd always hoped that at some point, radical personal finance would grow and would be a valuable outlet for him, and that I would be able to bring him on. And I'm disappointed that I won't have that opportunity now. Uh, but. I went back and checked my email, and that's the one of the good things about the Gmail system where you, all of your emails are archived and they're relatively easy to search. And I found some of the interaction that I had with him. And in 2009, uh, July of 2009, so I went into the financial planning business in the fall of 2008. Uh, the exact start date is a little bit fuzzy uh, depending on you know September, October, November, depending on where I say it. So it's basically the fall of 2008. And I was working hard to try to figure out uh, the financial planning business. It's a tough business to get in, and I was new to it. I didn't have any experience. I was trying to figure out, like, where do I go and what do I do? And I started looking around, and and at some point in time, I started working on Dr. Stanley's blog and trying to understand it, and I wrote him a note. And I can't find the actual note that I wrote him, but he responded to my correspondence uh, and the question that I had asked him. I think I'd asked him for some resources or some specific uh, resources that he might have written that would help financial advisors. And he wrote me this email back. It's very short, but it was July 19, 2009. He said, Joshua, can't thank you enough for your kind comments on my blog. Words like yours sustain me. Two of the best-rated speeches that I've ever given were to the top of the table and later at the court of the table, as you know, part of the Million Dollar Roundtable Association. Both of those speeches were recorded, audio, and as I understand, were distributed by the Million Dollar Roundtable. I would also suggest that you read the chapter on Beverly Bishop in my book, Millionaire Women Next Door, and also selling to the affluent should be very valuable to you in your work. I'll know better about my speaking programs in September. Please continue to check my website for updates, regards, and much continued success. Tom Stanley. 
And I just thought it was extremely professional and encouraging note. And I went and looked up the speeches that he had done and, and tried to find the audio from them. I don't think I was able to get them or I chose not to buy them. But I went and looked them up and I thought it was extremely useful. But probably the more uh, impactful correspondence for me occurred in uh, August of 2010. And at that point in time, I had been in the financial planning business for a couple of years and I was starting to uh, experience a little bit of uh, a little bit of success and I spent the first two years in the business I started with nothing and I uh, I didn't know very much I didn't have much money I had a little bit of money but I had just gotten out of college and I was driving an inexpensive car and uh, I've told the story before so forgive me if it's if it's repeated but I spent the first two years as a financial advisor driving a 1993 Honda Accord with 300,000 miles on it. And it was the first car that I had ever personally bought. I'd owned it for many years. I bought it with 193,000 miles on it. I ultimately sold it with 315,000 miles on it. Uh, but it was only worth, you know, a thousand or two thousand bucks. And so I remember, uh, I remember driving it <laughs> to all my financial planning appointments. And when you're a new financial advisor, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's really tough to, to understand, you know, what to be proud of or what not to be proud of. And and so certainly you can imagine if a financial advisor drives up to your house and parks this you know thousand dollar Honda Accord in your driveway. To some people they look at that and say, this is different. And their curiosity is peaked. And some people look at that and say, this is different. And they are a little bit, they might judge you because appearances matter. And then I judge you in a negative light. And so I'd reached the time in 2010, my car was starting to have some problems and it had uh, had some minor mechanical failures. And I'd saved some money. I had, I don't know, 10 or $15,000 saved. And I was needed, knew I needed to do something. At that point, I was starting to transition my practice from primarily insurance sales into investment uh, planning and investment management. And I was starting to feel pretty insecure about my car. And, uh, you know, as much as I would have liked to have been completely secure, I wasn't. I was starting to be a little bit insecure and just feel like maybe I was, it was hurtful. You know, it was going to hurt my uh, ability to, to, you know, bring in accounts or something like that. I would sometimes, if it was convenient, I would make sure to park around the corner. You know, usually I didn't do much of people's houses, but I would park on the other side of the parking lot or around the corner kind of thing to kind of mitigate that. And that's just not good for your self-confidence. If you have a, a, a flaw, a, a perceived flaw like that, you either need to come to terms with it or overcome it. So I was deciding I needed to get a car and I, I was shopping around and trying to figure out how do I get a car for, you know, $10,000. And it was very – that's a very difficult price range to find a reasonable car in. It's easy to find a new one, but I didn't want to borrow money uh, for a car. And I needed something that was going to be appropriate for what I wanted to do. And I had no idea what would be appropriate. I actually almost wound up – I was trying to buy something that would look impressive to people. And I almost, well, thankfully, I avoided this mistake by the skin of my teeth. But I almost wound up buying like some, you know a few-year-old Mercedes sedan that would have been, uh, you know, kind of fancy enough to, you know, all financial advisors drive BMWs and Mercedes. It's absurd, but it was kind of it would fit the it would fit the market, but would allow me to pay cash for it and not spend too much. Uh, thankfully, I avoided that. But at one point, I thought, you know what, I should just write to Doctor Stanley and ask him what kind of car I should write. So on August night, I should drive on August nineteen, two thousand ten. I wrote him this. Uh, 
email. I just said, Mr. Stanley, one very brief question. What do you think would be the best kind of car for a financial advisor to drive? I don't believe in status cars, but I live and work as a financial advisor in West Palm Beach and the Palm Beach and surrounding area. And here, everyone, even or especially the broke people, have status cars. What should I do? Joshua. And he wrote me back uh, and the, a couple days later, and he said, you know, Dear Mr. Sheets, and he just gave me this direction here, which was so helpful. And he wrote this. He said, if I were in your position, I would buy a previously owned Chevrolet Tahoe or the GMC version in white, leather interior with tinted windows. These cars fit in each and every category of the wealthy. They are among the most popular cars within the glittering rich, very affluent segments. Regards, Tom Stanley. And that email right there saved me untold thousands of dollars. <laughs> Talk about the value of information. Those two sentences saved me thousands of dollars where instead of I had been previously thinking, well, how can I find a reasonable Mercedes or BMW? And I was, didn't want to deal with the maintenance costs and just the cost of ownership. And that email right there opened my, thought, my eyes to the thought of SUVs. And I realized instantly I knew he was right. Uh, because you know you drive around Palm Beach Island, and I take people for tours around Palm Beach Island. Yes, usually there's some fancy Mercedes or BMW or Jaguar or Bentley or whatever, some status cars, but oftentimes there's uh, uh, one or two just big SUVs parked there. You know, I mean, after all, the President of the United States drives around in, in a weird Cadillac limo, but uh, you know, everyone else around him is driving big Suburbans. It's it's a very uh, easy vehicle to use. And I thought, interesting. So I started shopping. I didn't wind up buying a Chevy Suburban or a Tahoe, as he recommended. I wound up buying a Ford Expedition. And it worked perfectly for what I needed. It was that perfect gray, you know, gray man car, that perfect thing where no one would ever look at me and say, uh, uh, you know, and they would say, oh, he's just driving that car because uh, he's you know, has too much money and he's showing it off because because there's a very delicate balance between you know being too sh- showy and too flashy. Uh, you know, what do you think of a financial advisor that that drives up in a Ferrari every day? <laughs> Maybe that works for some, uh, but it reminds me more of the the statement of the guy who uh, goes to Manhattan and you know someone says, "There's all of the brokers' yachts," and he says, "We're all the customers' yachts." Uh, you know, it's a famous saying, and it's kind of a. a bit of a strong statement but probably true in many ways of you know the financial advisor is the one getting rich but what about the customers that are getting rich so i didn't want to be too flashy but on the other hand i didn't want to you know be driving this broken down thousand dollar car it just that wasn't appropriate at that at that stage it may have been appropriate to get started and i certainly am glad i didn't just rush out and and you know buy a brand new car just so i can you know present an appearance of being established in the business i don't mind learning and learning the hard way uh, but he, but I, so I found the expedition. It was the perfect gray man car and didn't cost that much. Those things depreciate like crazy. So I bought it. I think it was four, three or four years old when I bought it, and it was less than a third of the of the retail price when it was new. Uh, so that was a massive. I uh, it was a good buy there. It was. Uh, it was heavy on gas, which was the downside, but it was cheap to fix, cheap to operate. It worked, served me well. Uh, it was comfortable. I'm a big guy. I'm about six foot six, and I, you know, I'm over three hundred pounds, so uh, that it fit me well. And at a relatively cheap price, relative to buying a forty thousand dollar, you know, BMW, uh, it solved that problem I had, and I was so thankful for that. Avoided a very m- important ex- mistake. It just really was, you know, I just wanted to share that story because I really appreciated that at the time. And I, of course, thanked him and I, 
you know, would have liked to have had the opportunity to thank him in person, but at least I can thank him here publicly, is he was extremely classy. And Dr. Stanley, from everything I've heard and read about him, he was the kind of person that, uh, that I'd like to be. Uh, you know, when I'm older, uh, I often think of who do I want to be when I'm, uh, I don't know, I have that image of me as an old man. And I think, how, what do I want to be like at that person? What kind of character do I want to have? And again, I know nothing about his personal life and uh, I don't need to know anything about, but his reputation at least was uh, a real gentleman. And enough of that came through in his writings uh, that I really picked up on that. And I appreciated so many things about his his writings. And I'm sure I will do, it's been on my show topic list for a long time to talk about some of the lessons that I learned from his work. But today I just sat down and I penned out uh, 10 lessons that I learned from him that I think are good general lessons that I can share with you and things that were a real encouragement to me. And who knows, perhaps, you know, at some point I would, maybe this audio can reach his family, you know, after the tears have dried a little bit and the funeral is over and time passes, perhaps some of his family members can listen to this and just appreciate, um, you know, the impact that their husband or father or, or grandfather, you know, I don't know any of the details had on, on many people. But the first lesson that, that Dr. Stanley taught me was he taught me who the millionaires are. And this was an incredibly important lesson because if I asked you, what is the profile of a millionaire? Unless you had studied this topic, you might not give the right answer. The people we think of as being the average millionaire, and this is why his book was such a probably a blockbuster success, that's not who he said was the average millionaire. And the most valuable thing about his work was he backed this up with numbers, data, and statistics. That was how he got his start, was researching this. He was a college professor, and if I've got the story straight, he was researching it uh, for a large project. He and his co-author of The Millionaire Next Door, um, Dr. William Danko, uh, were researching this for a large financial services organization. Then that research became the foundation of ultimately all of their work uh, in, in this area. But let me read to you the portrait of a millionaire so that you can have in your mind who the wealthy are, who the millionaires are at least in the United States of America, and my bet is that this is similar in most of the countries of the world, uh, of course, with some cultural distinctions depending on the, the economic system and uh, the history of the, the culture. So let me share with you the portrait of a millionaire so that you can have a picture of who the millionaires are. And this comes from page eight of the version that I have of The Millionaire Next Door. Who is the prototypical American millionaire? What would he tell you about himself? I am a 57-year-old male married with three children. About 70% of us earn 80% or more of our household's income. And incidentally, let me go ahead and read the footnote that's attached to this paragraph. And he says this in the footnote on why he uses uh, the uh, refers to the typical American millionaire as a he. He says one profile of the typical our profile of the typical millionaire is based on studies of millionaire households, not individuals. It is therefore impossible in most cases to say with certainty whether our typical millionaire is a he or a she. Nevertheless, because ninety five percent of millionaire households are composed of married couples. And because in 70% of these cases, the male head of the household contributes at least 80% of the income, we will usually refer to the typical American millionaire as he in this book. So hopefully that will help you if, if you uh, struggle with the word he, she. So I'm a 57-year-old male married with three children. Notice the age, 57-year-old male. Notice married with children. About 70% of us earn 80% or more of our household's income. 
about one in five of us is retired. About two-thirds of us who are working are self-employed. Interestingly, self-employed people make up less than 20% of the workers in America, but account for two-thirds of the millionaires. Also, three out of four of us who are self-employed consider ourselves to be entrepreneurs. Most of the others are self-employed professionals, such as doctors and accountants. Do you notice how uh, – and I'm interrupting. This is Joshua again, not, not the book. But do you notice how – and if you read this, just listen to how many of the themes that I've <laughs> – I didn't even realize until I went back and listened to this – how many of this data that he presents have influenced the themes that I talk about on the show. Why do I talk about entrepreneurship? Well, because – Three out of four of us who are self uh, – because uh, two-thirds of the millionaires are self-employed. And then most of the others uh, are self-employed professionals. So entrepreneurship is a major factor in wealth building. Continuing here. Many of the types of businesses we are in could be classified as dull normal. We are welding contractors, auctioneers, rice farmers, owners of mobile home parks, pest controllers – coin and stamp dealers, and paving contractors. About half of our wives do not work outside the home. The number one occupation for those wives who do work is teacher. Our household's total annual realized taxable income is $131,000, median or 50th percentile, while our average income is $247,000. Note that those of us who have incomes in the 500000 to 999999 category, 8%, and the $1 million or more category, 5%, skew the average upward. We have an average household net worth of $3.7 million. Of course, some of our cohorts have accumulated much more. Nearly 6% have a net worth of over $10 million. Again, these people skew our average upward. The typical median or 50, 50th percentile millionaire household has a net worth of $1.6 million. On average, our total annual realized income is less than 7% of our wealth. In other words, we live on less than 7% of our wealth. Most of us, 97%, are homeowners. We live in homes currently valued at an average of $320,000. About half of us have occupied the same home for more than 20 years. Thus, we have enjoyed significant increases in the value of our homes. Most of us have never felt at a disadvantage because we did not receive any inheritance. About 80% of us are first-generation affluent. We live well below our means. We wear inexpensive suits and drive American-made cars. Only a minority of us drive the current model-year automobile. Only a minority ever lease our motor vehicles. Most of our wives are planners and meticulous budgeters. In fact, only 18% of us disagreed with the statement, charity begins at home. Most of us will tell you that our wives are a lot more conservative with money than we are. We have a go-to-hell fund. In other words, we have accumulated enough wealth to live without working for 10 or more years. Thus, Those of us with a net worth of $1.6 million could live comfortably for more than 12 years. Actually, we could live longer than that since we save at least 15% of our earned income. We have more than six and one-half times the level of wealth of our non-millionaire neighbors. But in our neighborhood, these non-millionaires outnumber us better than three to one. Could it be that they have chosen to trade wealth for acquiring high-status material possessions? 
As a group, we are fairly well educated. Only about one in five are not college graduates. Many of us hold advanced degrees. 18% have master's degrees, 8% law degrees, 6% medical degrees, and 6% PhDs. Only 17% of us or our spouses ever attended a private elementary or private high school, but 55% of our children are currently attending or have attended private schools. As a group, we believe that education is extremely important for ourselves, our children, and our grandchildren. We spend heavily for the educations of our offspring. About two-thirds of us work between 45 and 55 hours per week. We are fastidious investors. On average, we invest nearly 20% of our household realized income each year. Most of us invest at least 15%. 79% of us have at least one account with a brokerage company, but we make our own investment decisions. We hold nearly 20% of our household's wealth in transaction securities, such as publicly traded stocks and mutual funds, but we rarely sell our equity investments. We hold even more in our pension plans. On average, 21% of our household's wealth is in our private businesses. As a group, we feel that our daughters are financially handicapped in comparison to our sons. Men seem to make much more money even within the same occupational categories. That is why most of us would not hesitate to share some of our wealth with our daughters. Our sons, and men in general, have the deck of economic cards stacked in their favor. They should not need subsidies from their parents. What would be the ideal occupations for our sons and daughters? There are about 3.5 millionaire households like ours. Our numbers are growing much faster than the general population. Our kids should consider providing affluent people with some valuable service. Overall, our most trusted financial advisors are our accountants. Our attorneys are also very important. So we recommend accounting and law to our children. Tax advisors and estate planning experts will be in big demand over the next 15 years. I am a tightwad. That's one of the main reasons I completed a long questionnaire for a crispy $1 bill. Why else would I spend two or three hours being personally interviewed by these authors? They paid me $100, $200, or $250. Oh, they made me another offer, offer to donate in my name the money I earned for my interview to my favorite charity. But I told them, I am my favorite charity. <laughs> I love that statement. <laughs> this book, remember, well, this one is copywritten in 1996. And this book, notice the level of data and detail. And this was a huge deal for me it was because in having the data, and this book is very data intensive, you can actually see, look, the numbers don't lie. No matter what it looks like in pop culture, no matter that it looks like uh, the wealthy are on TV and, and, and you know the way to get rich is to become a movie star. That's simply not the case. It's better to be an auctioneer or a cattle rancher or the owner of a trucking company. And that's what he goes through and, and, and talks about. This was a huge, huge deal for me to understand. He goes on and right in the beginning, he talks about – and this is the second lesson. I, I learned the difference from Dr. Stanley between wealth and income. This is a difference that many people don't seem to conceive of. If you listen to people, uh, some people how they talk, especially people who don't have a lot of money, one of the things you often hear is them confusing wealth and income. Uh, in places that I've been where people are paid primarily hourly wages, 
I've often heard people talking about the raises that they're going to get, the level of the hourly. I made $2 more an hour. I'm going to make this much per hour. In the poorer segments of society, I don't have data to back this, back this up. It's only my anecdotal experience. But there seems to be a much greater focus on income than on wealth. But if you get those things mixed up, you've got a problem. And he goes on and he defines two terms which he refers to frequently in Millionaire Next Door, uh, which he abbreviates UAW and PAW. And the UAW is an underaccumulator of wealth versus a PAW, which is a prodigious accumulator of wealth. What you find is that certainly your income drives your wealth, but it's not so much how much income and much more about what do you actually do with the income. Notice that in the data I just read, the median income, which means the 50th percentile of income, is $131,000. So of the millionaires, that's the most common number is $131,000. That's not that much money comparatively speaking. Now, this is uh, this data is 15, uh, tw- 20 years old. So there would have to be an adjustment for inflation. But that's not really that much money in today's world. So the key is to differentiate between wealth and income. Another lesson that he gives elsewhere in the book is he talks a lot about how the wealthy are much like, more likely to realize a very small percentage of their wealth as income than the other way around. And that's one of the measurements. You mentioned – you noticed that in the data I just read, he said 7%, that the average millionaire only realizes 7% of their net wealth per year in income. And that's – partly because they're wealthy, but it's also because their income is low, their expenses, excuse me, their expenses are low, and they're keeping their taxable realized income low to avoid the tax. Lesson three I learned is that it's okay to simply be on the way to wealth. And there's a formula that he gave to determine if you're wealthy, to differentiate between the underaccumulators of wealth and the prodigious accumulators of wealth. Uh, that was his formula that he used. And here's the formula of how to determine if you're wealthy. Multiply your age times your realized pre-tax annual household income from all sources except inheritances. Divide by 10. This, less any inherited wealth, is what your net worth should be. So as long as we're ignoring inheritances, and that's basically the rules. Let me give this to you less wor- in a less wordy ma- manner. Take your age, multiply it times your income, and divide it by 10. And that should be – that's what your net worth should be. Now, the thing I like about that is that formula accounts for age and it accounts for income. And those are two things that are important to account for. I had this complex when I was younger that I you know, wasn't rich yet. After all, I was 23 years old and I should be rich by now. <laughs> uh, the reality is age has a big factor in it. I have had people ask me and say, Joshua, you know, how, what, what, you know, if you're doing this show on how to get wealthy, how on earth are you doing the show? Don't people want to know how much money you have? I don't know. If someone asks me, I don't I mean, I probably wouldn't tell them, but you know, frankly, I'm much more of the conservative perspective than, you know, the look at me or how rich I am. But for my age, I've done well. But I'm not 57 years old, so I'm not a millionaire yet. It's unreasonable to expect you know, a 27-year-old to be a millionaire. It happens, but it's unreasonable to expect. I think it's reasonable to expect someone who's been paying attention for several decades, a 67-year-old, to be a millionaire with the application of principles. So if I were 67 years old, I would have very little credibility. 
simply because many years have passed, and if I'm still in the financial condition that I'm in today, I'd have very little credibility. But 29 years old, you know, when I run that formula, I'm doing okay. So it's okay to be simply on the way to wealth. And that was encouraging to me when I would sit down and calculate that. Uh, now he goes on and says, to be well-positioned in the prodigious accumulator of wealth category, you should be worth twice the level of wealth expected. So that calculation is simply, here's what we expect your wealth to be, and you should be worth twice the level of wealth. Incidentally, uh, I'm not yet – well, you know what? Hold on a second. Okay, I'm not yet in that in that category, uh, primarily due to career changes. But who knows? I'll be there, I'll be there as soon as I can. Uh, but it's okay to be where you are was, was the point of the lesson. It's okay to be simply on the way to wealth. Number four lesson I learned was I learned to be proud of being frugal or at least to be confident in being frugal. And frugality is a virtue that doesn't seem to be honored very much in our culture, at least not in mainstream pop culture. We often seem to honor uh, extravagance and largesse and uh, hyperconsumption. And so if you're a frugal person, it's, it's tough. You need to have your backbone built up to, to really, uh, I guess, to be confident in being frugal. We're not taught in society to be frugal. Uh, you know, and as a kid growing up, with, be careful with your children. It's so easy to adopt society's claims for what should be looked like for virtue versus your idea of virtue. I remember as a young man, I was as a teenager, I was critical of my parents. Like, why don't you spend some money? You know, most teenagers probably are. I'll probably go through this someday with, with my son. But, uh, you know, on page 28 of Millionaire Next Door, Stanley says, what are three words that profile the affluent? Frugal, frugal, frugal. Being frugal is the cornerstone of wealth building. And yet even today, it's so funny to me how people – now I, you know, I don't have the same insecurities that I once had. But people are often like, why are you so frugal? You know, listen, this stuff matters. I got to build wealth. If I spend it all, I'm not going to have it. And so obviously there's a level of frugality that is appropriate at a certain scale. I'm so glad to hear that. Evidently, Dr. Stanley bought himself a Corvette last year. Uh, I mean, how great is it that he was – that was probably one of his uh, extravagances that was super fun for him to buy himself a fancy brand-new Corvette. And I think that's awesome. Uh, so frugality is not that we never buy anything nice. It's that we buy it in a manner that's appropriate with our scale, with where we are. And Stanley taught that the foundation stone of wealth accumulation is great defense, frugality. The data helped me, especially as a financial advisor. Uh, financial advisors are a weird lot. It's a weird occupation. And as a class, it's very difficult to discern among financial advisors. And in many ways, some ways, uh, you know, Stanley doesn't talk that much about the actual financial situation of financial advisors. He talks some about doctors. I kind of think of it as doctors, is that he talks in his work, in his research, that it seems like physicians often fall into the very spendy, hyper-consumption category, or they often fall into the very frugal, very rich category. And so financial advisors, it's similar. Many financial advisors are all hat and no cattle, as they say in Texas. You know, They're all about flashy lifestyle. And, and if you were actually looking at the, the uh, 
balance sheet of some people who market themselves as financial advisors, their personal balance sheet is very, very poor. Incidentally, that may or may not be a problem. A lot of people would be offended by that. If you're hiring somebody for their expertise as, say, a portfolio manager or, say, a a tax specialist, something like that, all of those things can be financial advisors. How much of their own money they actually spend does not necessarily impact their qualifications to give you specific tax advice. Uh, I think it's important to note that simply that just because somebody you know enjoys consuming all their money and doesn't prefer to build wealth doesn't invalidate their investment predictions doesn't necessarily invalidate their uh, tax advice but in general i think most people would want their financial advisor to be wealthy so there's this uh, idea of expressing a certain image there's a, a perception bias and as an advisor you need to be aware of that because the way that people perceive you is the way that you are in their mind and so that's why your financial advisor, you know, probably shouldn't drive a too broken down car because you need to uh, create this perception that you are moderately successful. People generally attracted to success. That's why you probably shouldn't be a you know a fat slob with donut crumbs in your beard. Uh, you probably should dress in a certain way. And so there's these these rules that go on. So some financial advisors are all hat and no cattle. They look like they're they're doing well and they're they're earning a lot, but they're spending a lot. But then some advisors really are really wealthy. And they serve people well, and and you don't know, you know, that's the thing, you don't know, you don't have any idea uh, when you're, you know, where I live in in South Florida, there's a Mercedes, you know, in every traffic light. You don't have any idea is this person someone who's trying to imitate the rich, or is this someone who's really just rich and it doesn't even matter, and they're just driving a nice car. Uh, so it was, it's always, it's a high pressure industry though, where you're pressured to look a certain way, and. Stanley gave me a little bit of confidence, you know, that no, I need to be frugal. And I just simply told my clients, listen, um, if you want me to be a consume, high consuming advisor, you know, you need to find somebody else. But if you want somebody who actually is rich for their age, then <laughs> and once it can actually teach you how to get rich, I can't teach you how to spend a lot of money. I can teach you how to get rich. Then that would be uh, one factor. Uh, and so that was a, a valuable lesson. The fifth lesson that I wrote down today is from Stanley's work is I learned to choose my spouse very carefully. And this was a big deal to me, not in the sense of a scheming way of, of, uh, you know, you know, I, that I, you know, my spouse has to, you know, only spend this certain amount of money. But one of the most important decisions that you make in life that will dictate just about everything else in life is who your spouse is. It's a huge decision, huge decision in just about every single way. So whether that's from the perspective of the amount of money they spend or whether it's from the perspective of uh, just who they are and their character, that what they're committed to, the type of lifestyle that they want. you know, If I want to backpack around the world and my spouse wants a, a fancy condo on Palm Beach, we're going to have a bit of a disagreement. And this is one of the things that uh, – one of many factors that causes marriages to fall apart. Partnerships where the partners are incompatible generally don't turn out well over the long term. And careful selection of a spouse is extremely important. And it is definitely a major factor in wealth building. Stanley profiled the research of, of uh, and he, again, to the data of how important your spouse, spouse is to a, a wealth, building, uh, wealth building plan. And as I read in the beginning, you know, about half of the spouses of the wealthy are stay-at-home, stay-at-home moms. Uh, and you know, he says on page 36, uh, he says – Flat out, he says, if your spouse isn't frugal, you're going to have a very hard time building wealth. 
A couple cannot accumulate wealth if one of its members is a hyper-consumer. And I think this is a big deal in our society as far as household structure and how to handle it. Now, it's politically incorrect uh, to have in our society to have any discussion of gender roles, especially if uh, gender roles are, are distinct in any way. It's extremely politically incorrect. And we're all supposed to say, well, we're all the same. We have exactly the same role. Sorry, I don't buy it. I think that's actually one of the major factors that keeps um, households poor is because there's no gender distinction. And so from an economic perspective, this doesn't take advantage of because there's no gender distinction. Okay, we're both supposed to do the same thing. We're supposed to be equal and supposed to be this, this perfect you know, thing where we both have exactly the same roles, which is what society, the politically correct role the society it works to advance. This doesn't take advantage of any of the efficiencies of the division of labor. A fundamental economic principle is that in a high division of labor economy, you're going to have much greater wealth than in a low division of labor economy. It's the same thing in a household. In a household with a high division of labor, uh, it's much more efficient than an inefficient household. And so that – now who knows if you know this research was in 1996. I don't know what the updated statistics are. Maybe they've changed in the last 20 years. Um, but it just has much to do with running a household efficiently. And if both spouses are doing exactly the same thing, it's by definition inefficient. Uh, so, you know, for me, I chose my wife very carefully. I didn't want to compete with my spouse. I wanted a, a frugal spouse to compliment me and to help me in our joint journey together. And this was a big deal. You know, a simple example uh, this is just for me personally. Again, I don't care what you or anyone anyone does with their life. You run your life how you want. But uh, one of the things that was important to me is I avoided many people who were very focused on their career. Uh, that was not. I'm not saying I'm not. Wasn't some you know Casanova who could have any woman in the world. Of course, that would play a role. But uh, I didn't want to compete. I didn't want to be married. You know, there was a girl at one point uh, that I was interested in that uh, that was going to be a physician. I didn't want to be married to a physician. Uh, nothing wrong with being a physician, but that wasn't the lifestyle that I wanted. Uh, and so I chose differently. And so one of the things that you see in his research here was choose your spouse carefully and make sure that they compliment you and that they'll be an asset to you. Uh, and this goes both ways. Choose your spouse carefully. Now, each couple has to work this out in a way that, 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 that is effective for them, and that's where I don't think you can legislate certain things and say, this is the way it is, but, uh, but two frugal people working together and taking advantages of the uh, efficiencies of a division of labor uh, within their relationship and taking advantage of complementing one another and having complementary skill sets – Instead of competitive skill sets, this idea that many couples seem to have, um, many of my friends, that we have to compete with each other. I'll put, uh, as far as, at least for the, with a nice, easily measured metric of wealth accumulation, I'll put the, I'll put, I'll put them up against each other. And I think the, the, the spouses that work together towards common goals will win every time. Uh, one of the things that quote here in this section uh, it says, a self-made millionaire stated it best when he told us, I can't get my wife to spend any money. <laughs> and I'm proud to say I feel the same way about my wife. Uh, she is uh, she is an amazing woman, but I can't get her to spend any money. I try and try and try. She's more frugal than I am, and so that builds instead of this uh, instead of this antagonistic relationship where uh, you know the woman earns all the money and the man spends it all, or the man earns all the money and the woman spends it all. Instead of this antagonistic relationship, it becomes a joy 
where then I look at it and I say, how can I do nice things for my wife? And how can I spend money on her in a way that will bring her pleasure? Uh, so this is a big deal, and people don't often talk about it. When's the last time? Uh, it's like I would put a, a higher degree on on the value of a college education if after working as a financial planner, knowing that these kinds of conflicts are what destroy financial lives and what destroy marriages and destroy families. And when your marriage is destroyed and your family is destroyed, now your career is destroyed You know, for some people. And now when your career is destroyed, your whole financial plan is destroyed. Knowing the actual real-world effect of, of this – I would think this would be something that we would be talking about in a high school classroom. Might be important to understand how to effectively choose your spouse. Now, it is the parent's job to, to, teach, uh, to teach children uh, those considerations. So I don't lay the blame at uh, – I lay the blame at, at us as parents. This is our job. But this is the kind of stuff that really impacts life, not necessarily what all of the schooling is about. Uh, Stanley says it very straightforward. He says, most people will never become wealthy in one generation if they are married to people who are wasteful. Big deal. So that was the fifth lesson. I learned to choose my spouse very carefully. Uh, and I'm thankful to my parents that they taught me that uh, at an early age as well. Uh, number six, Dr. Stanley taught me not to go with the crowd. Uh, example from my uh, perspective here of how I'm relating this lesson is oftentimes financial advisors who are new in the business. <laughs> uh, I always feel bad. Those of you who are attorneys and who are physicians who are listening, I'm sorry. Uh, but it seems like the first people that financial advisors target, if they don't have any you know, natural network or any marketing plan, is they start call, calling attorneys and doctors. And it's tough. I had a, several clients who were attorneys, several clients who were doctors, and you guys get targeted all the time. Uh, and I'm sorry, it's just, you know, big income, self-employed professional, uh, usually big spenders, oftentimes big spenders. And so we're able to, you know, hey, this would be a great fit. Uh, but what I learned was not to go with the crowd. And for me personally, I didn't enjoy working with the majority of people involved in those professions. It's not that I didn't have any problem with it, some individuals. It's just that I didn't fit very well with the majority of people in those professions. I didn't f- uh, play the same lifestyle. Uh, necessarily. I did have, again, I had some clients who were, and I was a great personality fit, but these other people were also atypical within their profession. Uh, and it's always, you know, always hard to generalize. Uh, but what Dr. Stanley taught me was that I should look for auctioneers and owners of plumbing businesses and farmers and scrap metal dealers and things like that. And I've found that I actually get along far better with those people. In general, if I were to take a proportion of, of farmers that versus a percentage of attorneys, I'll have a better personality fit with all the farmers than with all the attorneys. So when I took that personality fit and I compared it to Stanley's research into where the wealth is, I was able to find people that I really enjoyed working with. And I was able to find I would much rather be you know doing business around the back of a pickup truck than at the top of some high-rise. Not that I can't go in and be effective in the high-rise. It was just, okay, fine, and I'll work on here. I liked working in little industrial parks. And I'd, work with all, I'd find all kinds of blue-collar business owners. You know, some guy has a hurricane shutter company and makes a million bucks a year, and I found another guy. Okay, this guy has a plumbing company and, uh, you know, is running, you know, this, this plumbing company. You wouldn't really know it was that big unless you knew, but you found out it's incredibly profitable. And this guy here is a drywall company, and this person has an insulation company. And, and all of a sudden, I started to find, I can build a client base with these entrepreneurs that I really like working with who don't look at what society says is wealthy but actually are extremely wealthy. It was a big deal to me to learn that. It's very, very useful. 
the data that he provided gave me the courage and confidence to not go with the crowd and just to recognize that I needed to find my own niche that would work effectively with me. Number seven, Dr. Stanley taught me to choose my housing very, very carefully. If you read any of his work, you will be forced to come away with the fact that housing is a major decision with regard to the productivity of being able to build wealth. It drives everything else. And he's very clear that that half the affluent millionaires in America do not live in high-status neighborhoods. Now, that means half of them do, but half of them don't. And I'll cover that half-and-half concept in lesson number 10. But what this means is that your house actually drives many of your expenses. A, it's a big expense. And comparatively speaking, the size or the cost of your house, uh, I mean, that's just going to be a big expense. Most people, their biggest expense in their life is taxes. Number two is housing. So when you actually sit down and run uh, an income statement uh, and figure out an income and expense statement and say, where are the expenses going? You'll find that for the majority of people, the largest category is tax. And the second largest category is housing. Well, we can make a big difference in overall expenses if we can tackle the big categories. It's a fundamental rule. Uh, focus with the 80-20 analysis. Focus on the 20% of categories that are going to give you 80% of your results. One is tax. Two is housing. Three is usually transportation. Most people have a lot of cars. And then it breaks down from there. So just the choice right off the bat of how big your house is and how big the mortgage payment is or how much money you spend on it is a big deal. Plus that house, the actual value of the house is all consumption. It may or may not work out fine. It may or may not appreciate in the long run, but it is consumption. It's not investment. So if you simply make the choice to not buy a $400,000 house but to buy a $300,000 house, then by definition, you are not consuming $100,000 worth of money and you're able to invest it. That's going to make a substantial difference over time. And then housing drives every other decision in life is what he's clear with his research. If you live in a status, high-status neighborhood and you want to drive kind of a broken-down six-year-old pickup truck, you're probably not going to feel so comfortable. So people that live in high-status neighborhoods, are, in order to feel comfortable, are going to need to upgrade their cars more frequently. They're going to need to keep their, uh, you know, their house in maybe more uh, fancy-looking shape. So then it's going to be higher painting, higher maintenance costs. Perhaps you could paint every 10 years, but you need to paint every six years because that's what this neighborhood requires. Uh, you're going to need to keep your lawn in fancier condition. It's just everything is associated with it. So the, the choice of what type of neighborhood to live in is going to uh, drive every other expense. Now, of course, there's the corollary of, well, if you get in a neighborhood that you don't want to be in, then what's the point of having money at all? So there is a a natural uh, choice, but it's far, uh, that, that there's going to be a comfort level. You don't necessarily want to be at the lowest cost. That might not be comfortable for you. That might violate other – just a standard of living. It might violate safety for your family or the type of lifestyle to which you, you want to be exposed to. But if you just make the choice to live in less house than you afford, than you can, than you can, than you could spend, it will affect every other area of your life. It's much easier to accumulate wealth if you don't live in a high-status neighborhood. So as an example of how I applied this in, in, in my life, when my wife and I were shopping, we originally started um, – we originally were shopping. I wanted to spend about $100,000 on a house uh, if I could find one. 
And the goal of spending the $100,000 on the house was I wanted to keep as much capital available for investment as possible. And the goal was let's, let's do a starter home idea and let's spend $100,000 on a house. Let's plan to live there for four or five years. We'll probably outgrow the house and then we'll have a good rental property to move out of while we're building up other investment assets. That was the original plan. We couldn't find something that was suitable to an, uh, the lifestyle that we wanted to live in that price range in Palm Beach County where I live, uh, especially that was close enough to my office to outweigh that. So the compromise that we made was we upgraded the cost – excuse me, the, the neighborhood that we were searching for. And I said if we can be in a close proximity to uh, – if we can be in close proximity to my office, then we can spend more money. And so by being a close proximity to my office, instead of buying cheaper farther away, we bought more expensive closer. That allowed us to get rid of a second car, which pulled out a whole set of expenses. It also allowed me to trade non-deductible um, you know, expenses of commuting costs with ongoing you know, deduct- non-deductible costs for a deductible mortgage interest cost. And it also allowed me to trade all of the focus on all those miles on a car for a depreciating cost, uh, which you know it's going to be constant exp- uh, expense versus having an extra $100,000 of value locked up in a house, which yes, it is a consumption, but at least it has the potential to appreciate uh, and probably with the area that we live live in at an above average, long-term above average, uh, above the average rate of inflation in my area. Uh, So, uh, but in choosing, it was very important to us that we didn't buy in one of the fancy neighborhoods. So the neighborhood we live in is kind of right on this interesting cusp. It's not quite... uh, blue-collar working class, but it's also not quite fancy. It's not quite uh, you know, super posh. It's in a great location, but it's kind of an old-fashioned neighborhood. It's kind of a normal neighborhood, old-fashioned. We don't find – most of the neighborhoods where I live are just large gated uh, communities, uh, golf communities, things like that. So one of the key things though is we said, okay, instead of doing the starter home plan, we'll just buy a house that can hopefully fit us for a very long period of time. And so it should be big enough to handle a family, to not have to outgrow, but not too big. You know, I don't want an extra bunch of extra rooms. Don't want, so it feels pretty big, but it's not too big, comparatively speaking. And it's nice enough to not feel like you got to move, but it's not so nice you got to upkeep it. And I'll give you an example. One of the things that was important to me in choosing a neighborhood was I wanted a neighborhood where I didn't feel like I had to mow my lawn every week. And so thankfully, this neighborhood is kind of an interesting mix of some you know, houses are very fancily uh, uh, landscaped and some houses are, are not. Uh, but I don't feel like I have to drive a fancy car. I don't feel like I have to – this social pressure of upgrading the car every few years, those types of things. And so it, you know, it's worked out well. Now, interestingly, in hindsight, uh, would we buy the same house if I didn't have that same geographic limitation? No, uh, because now that I don't have that office location, I never anticipated that I wouldn't have that office location. Uh, then uh, you know, now I could – Live in another part of town and get you know the same for cheaper maybe, but it's fine. It's perfectly fine and and it's a great it's a great location and it's the kind of house that who knows we may stay here for the rest of our lives. It's it certainly has that capacity, uh, but just simply that simple choice of housing and where you buy and when you buy and all that stuff can make a massive long term difference. So very careful. He does give one interesting rule uh, which I'll share with you. Uh, it's from page sixty eight. He says if you're not yet wealthy but want to be someday, never purchase a home that requires a mortgage that is more than twice your household's total annual realized income. So never take out a mortgage that's higher in amount than twice your household's annual realized income, annual income. 
Uh, and thankfully, we, we followed that rule pretty close. It's right about, it was right about just about right. So over time, it should be fine. Uh, so it was, it was a valuable lesson, very valuable lesson. And again, these examples, most people, when, do, when have you taken the time to sit down with somebody and say, let me teach you how to make a very careful housing decision because this one decision, which is a massive decision and is so easy to get caught up in the joy and the thrill and the emotion of a big, you know, of spending big money, uh, you know, be careful and let me give you some ideas. Number eight, Dr. Stanley taught me that you aren't what you drive. Uh, he makes a big point. I'm not going to labor the point, but he makes a big point of profiling carefully the makes and models of cars that millionaires drive. And what you find, the largest brand, at least back then, uh, that people drive was 9.4% of millionaires drive Fords. And this can make a massive impact on your life. We know that well. It's been beat to death since then. But he does a good job with the data and actually illustrating that. Uh, number nine is Dr. Stanley taught me the term economic outpatient care. And economic outpatient care is a beautiful term, which basically refers to how much money do you have to send your kids after they're supposed to be independent and on their own? And then the next question is, how do you prepare your children so that they're not dependent on you sending them money after they're launched into the world on their own? And this is going to be a massive function in my life over the next two decades with raising, uh, raising our children. I need to equip my children to be independent. I don't want my children to know that we're wealthy. That's another careful thing about the, the house and the neighborhood that you live in. Uh, you better be careful. It's better if your children don't know that you're wealthy. He actually gives 10 fantastic rules for affluent parents and productive children, how to train your children to be productive. Uh, I'll read them to you. They're from page 203. I won't uh, elaborate them, but number one, here are the rules. Number one, never tell, your, never tell children that their parents are wealthy. Never tell children that their parents are wealthy. Most people uh, who are – many people of children, of parents who are wealthy, uh, they just wake up and they're like, wait a second. I didn't know their mom and dad were so rich. Number two, no matter how wealthy you are, teach your children discipline and frugality. Teach them that. And equip them with that character trait. Equip them with that virtue and make sure that it's drilled into them. Number three, assure that your children won't realize you're affluent until after they have established a mature, disciplined, and adult lifestyle and profession. Make sure that they're established before they know you're affluent. Number four, minimize discussions of the items that each child and grandchildren will inherit or receive as gifts. Don't focus on that. Number five, never give cash or other significant gifts to your adult children as part of a negotiation strategy. I hate this. I hate it when you, people use money as a leverage tool, as a negotiating tool. Uh, in my mind, it's, I mean, it can certainly be immoral. Uh, don't give it as a negotiating strategy. Number six, stay out of your adult children's family member matters. Excuse me, matters. Stay out of your adult children's family matters. Number seven, don't try to compete with your children. Don't boast about how much money you have. And it sends a confusing message if you tell your kids, well, I was your age. I had this much money. Number eight, always remember that your children are individuals. They're different. There are going to be inequalities among your children. Nine, emphasize your children's achievements, no matter how small, not their or your symbols of success. Focus on what people achieve, not what they have. Focus on what you achieve. 
Number 10, tell children that there are a lot of things more valuable than money. Good health, longevity, happiness, a loving family, self-reliance, fine friends. If you have five of these, you're a rich man. Reputation, respect, integrity, honesty, and a history of achievements. Money is icing on the cake of life. You don't ever have to cheat or steal. You don't have to break the law or cheat on your taxes. It's easier to make money honestly than dishonestly in this country. You'll never exist in business if you rip people off. Life is the long run. You can't hide from adversity. You can't hide your children from life's ups and downs. The ones who achieve do so by experiencing and conquering obstacles, even from their childhood days. These are the ones who were never denied their right to face some struggle, some adversity. Others were, in reality, cheated. Those who have attempted to shelter their children from every conceivable germ in our society never really inoculated them from fear, worry, and the feeling of dependency. Not at all. There are many other things, but I'm going to close with number 10. And Dr. Thomas Stanley taught me principles and not rules. As an example, when you consume the millionaire next door, you might get the idea that everything is about not buying fancy houses and not buying cars. But he's very fair in the millionaire next door. But if you consume the millionaire next door and the millionaire mind and stop acting rich, all of a sudden you find out that he does profile these different levels of wealth. Probably the most uh, best example of this is in his book, Stop Acting Rich. He profiles a, target, a segment of society called the glittering rich. And the glittering rich are, in essence, uh, as my memory serves, uh, they are a group of society where they have so much money that they can't possibly spend it all. And you know, to go out and buy a brand new fancy $150,000 Mercedes is the equivalent to them of maybe a median income earner going and buying a Happy Meal. And it's hard for people to process that difference in amount of money. Uh, but realistically, if you have $100 million, it's going to be challenging that your kids are not going to have at least the impression that you have $100 million, that you have at least some money. Now, you might, they, you might lead them to believe and they might come to believe over time that you have $20 million, but it's going to be a big difference versus somebody who has $1.2 million. That's not the point. So Stanley focuses on the principles, not necessarily the rules. Rules. So many people get bogged down, and I did for a time, and get bogged down in the rule. For example, we don't buy new cars. Never buy a new car. Well, the question is, is it that we never buy a new car, or is it that rather we make intelligent decisions, we're frugal with our money, and we make careful buying decisions, always choosing what's best for us at the moment? Those are two different things. Now, it's now the, the, the data shows that many millionaires don't buy new cars, but it also shows that many millionaires do buy new cars. The data shows that most millionaires don't lease their cars, but the data shows that some millionaires do lease their cars. So if you just simply preach rules that you never buy a new car or never lease a car, then in the situation where maybe buying a new car is a, big, is, is a better decision, you often are going to just – you're not going to be thinking that way. The only reason why many millionaires in the United States of America don't buy new cars is simply because we have a very efficient market where there's lots of high-quality used vehicles available. And there's a substantial discount from the new price versus the used price. And so you can get a good buy on a great quality product. But that's not the same as if, you know, for example, there were very low inventory or if the quality of the used car were very low. 
or if the price difference between a new car and a used car were very were negligible. If you could buy a four-year-old used car for $29,000 and you could buy a brand new car for $30,000, it'd be crazy to not buy the new car. But that's not the market we live in. So what happens is it, people often memorize a system of rules and they don't understand the underlying principles about the efficiency of a market and the availability of a market and, and what's available. And then they just say, buy a rule. And so instead of grasping the principle of frugality in every decision – if, let's say you're teaching your children. If you don't teach your children the principle of frugality and making careful buying decisions, then they may never indeed buy a new car. But they might get ripped off on the used car, and they may spend all of their money buying new TVs, new gaming systems, new cell phones, and new clothes. Meanwhile, they're feeling good and virtuous about the idea that they never bought a new car because that was what mom and dad said I never to do. So the key is teach the principle of frugality. And it may be a better decision for a brand new ent- entrant into the workforce to say, who's very who understands frugality, to go out and, and survey the market. For example, a couple of years ago, after the Cash for Clunkers program, uh, you know, took out a bunch of the inventory in the used car market in the United States of America, uh, it was tough to find a used car at a certain price range. So uh, the in the prices dramatically increased. And in some cases, you might find an oversupply of new cars of a certain model, and there may be many benefits to go out and buy a new car. So for, I could make a case where a certain young person could go out, and they're, they're well-served by buying a brand-new, uh, say, a hot four-door Honda Civic, a very practical car that can be had for many, many years. And the, the long-term value, the long-term cost is going to be low because there's a high residual value. The car can be run for many years and there are advantages to buying it new and there's not that much of a discount for buying it in the, in used. That person could buy that new car and that can be a very sound decision because it's a frugal decision coupled with frugality in other areas of their life. So the point is Dr. Stanley does a good job in his books of talking about principles you know, he explains in one of his books, he gives the anecdote of when he went out and bought a brand new Toyota 4Runner because his previous Toyota 4Runner was, uh, was uh, low on miles, excuse me, was, was, was getting old and I think he gave it to his son and he needed to go buy a new car. But he explains how even though he bought a brand new Toyota 4Runner, he bought a brand new Toyota 4Runner. He talks about why and how he made the choice to buy a Toyota 4Runner and not a Lexus GX470. It's a six-cylinder engine instead of the eight-cylinder engine. It's a lower curb weight, so therefore more fuel efficient, much cheaper price. He didn't value the other benefits. It would have hurt his lifestyle and things like that. So the point is frugality, not rules. Principles, not rules. Principles, not rules. And he did a great job of teaching me that lesson. I think that's a lesson that we would be well-served to understand. Understand the principles behind why we do certain things. And then... Uh, and teach those because then we can create thinking human beings who can understand their own situation and can rationally look through and think through uh, 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 what's right for them and understand. That's what I put down for you. That's my tribute to uh, Dr. Stanley. I'm, I'm sad that he's, go- that he's gone and I, I wish his, his family well. Uh, I think from the cursory news articles that I saw published, his daughter said that she was going to continue his works. And I hope she does. Uh, I hope she does. That would be fantastic for someone to continue and build on the body of research. And so I, I commend to you, if you haven't read his books, check them all out. Every one that I've read has been really great. And I'm sure that you can learn uh, 
a large number of lessons uh, from that. And I think his funeral is on Thursday, if I saw. And uh, I wonder if he published it. Maybe he had a manuscript or something, and we can get one more book from 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 him uh, posthumously. That'd be great. So I hope you enjoyed and benefited from this content. Uh, I may do some more shows in coming days with, uh, again, it's always, I could pick up any one of his chapters <laughs> from his book and and create a, a lesson on it just, you know, from having read it before and just teach it through. And I think he's probably had more impact on me than many personal finance authors and probably many more people. Uh, so I wanted to create this tribute show to him. Thank you so much for listening. If you have benefited from this, um, consider checking out the Patreon page. Go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. I'm working hard to share additional content as an example. Uh, uh, just recently shared the uh, new website uh, with the patrons. I'm in the process of designing a new website. Hopefully, it'll be launched, it'll be launched as soon as possible, targeting two or three weeks. Uh, but that website, it was just the, the very first draft of it but i released it to the patrons and allowed them to get to see uh and that's uh, just one of many benefits that i've set up for you guys uh just last week we did the first q a call which was really fun uh doing the first uh q a call this week with um uh with the uh, the mastermind group at the 200 a month level so go by the patreon page check out all the benefits that i have for you uh, benefits as little as a buck a month you know three dollars a month uh etc we're doing well at growing. Uh, if we get to $6,000 a month is the goal. We're almost to a, we're trying to get to 2000 is the first thing. And at $2,000, I'm going to replace the intro music. And the goal is to get to $6,000 by June 1. So I'd appreciate very much your help. Thank you for listening. Be back with you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to today's show. If you'd like to contact me personally, my email address is joshua at radicalpersonalfinance.com. You can also connect with the show on Twitter, at RadicalPF, and at Facebook.com slash RadicalPersonalFinance. This show is intended to provide entertainment, education, and financial enlightenment. But your situation is unique, and I cannot deliver any actionable advice without knowing anything about you. Please, develop a team of professional advisors who you find to be caring, competent, and trustworthy, and consult them because they are the ones who can understand your specific needs, your specific goals, and provide specific answers to your questions. I've done my absolute best to be clear and accurate in today's show, but I'm one person and I make mistakes. If you spot a mistake in something I've said, please help me by coming to the show page and commenting so we can all learn together. Until tomorrow, Thanks for being here.